Thanks, David. It's funny how things work out. Um, our verse today, in the midst of that paragraph that David just wrote, read, is uh, verse 10, which is love each other with brotherly affection and outdo one another when showing honor to each other. And um, uh, the, the testimony that, that Luke and Jess just gave about their, uh, their RC fits in perfectly with how we are to love each other with brotherly affection in the church. That's Paul's uh, command to us in, in this verse of, of, of chapter uh, 12, verse 10. And um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a great sermon illustration and I didn't even have to work for it or look anywhere for it. So that was really awesome. I also re- just want to say I really appreciate uh, Luke and Jess. Uh, I've been at Redemption Arcadia for more than two and a half years now and they were here before I got here and were key leaders here and continue to be uh, leaders here in many respects. And um, uh, their testimony of what God is doing in their lives has just always been a blessing to me and to many others. And so I'm glad that they were able to get up here with David and, and share a little bit and, uh, and that Oliver's doing well. Oliver's awesome, isn't he? So that's, that's really cool. Um, four, four or five weeks ago, we started sort of a new section of Romans. We've been walking through Romans pretty much verse by verse. We started a new section, uh, Romans chapter 12. The first 11 chapters of Romans, the first nearly two-thirds of the book, are, are Paul laying out the theology uh, of God's sovereignty, God's grace, and, and God's mercy, uh, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, uh, the problem that, that human beings have, why we're separated from God, uh, the inheritance that we have in Christ. He, he lays out essentially what many people call the gospel of Paul. It's like the fifth, uh, the fifth gospel. Uh, and then there's a, a, a decided shift as he gets into chapter 12. Uh, essentially what he's saying is now, in view of everything that I've taught you and instructed you in in these first 11 chapters, now you are to live this way. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ, you are now to apply this theology in your life. It's been said that theology isn't theology unless it's actually applied in your life, unless it actually is lived out and walked out in your life, unless it actually makes a difference in your life. And so that's what Paul is now instructing us in. It's the application of this theology uh, that he has given us. And he, and he starts with this profound statement. Um, uh, a number of years ago, I actually preached a, an eight-week series just on those first two verses of Romans where Paul says, brothers, I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercies, because of God's graciousness to you, because he loves you so much that he has saved you, because of all that he's done, because of his sovereignty, you are to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing and acceptable to the God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, because of what God has done in your life, you are to live now sacrificially and worshipfully. All of your life is all for Jesus. Everything that you do is an act of worship now. And it's to be done sacrificially. And it's going to be something that because it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, it's going to be pleasing and acceptable to God. And then, and then he says in verse 2 uh, this second thing which is, which is profound. He says, no longer are you to conform yourself to the pattern of this world. So, so the, the values of this world, what, what the world will tell you you can find your fulfillment and happiness and meaning in, uh, the world's systems, the world's wisdom, you don't have to conform to that any longer. You still have to live in the world, but you don't have to be conformed to that. But instead, by the power of the Spirit, you're going to be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. And that word transformed in the Greek is metamorpheo. Literally, there is a metamorphosis in how you're going to see the world. You will now have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. And and because of this renewed thinking, you're going to be able to now look at the world, look at your life, look at everything that's going on around you, and you're going to be able to test it and, and, and then understand what the will of God is in your life, what his sovereign will is, what his moral will is, what his wisdom is in your life, and you're going to be able to pursue those things that are good and pure and holy, he tells us. And that becomes the thesis statement for everything else in the book of Romans. Everything that we look at in Romans now flows out of that. The expression of our spiritual gifts in the church flow out of that. We looked at that at verses three through eight. And then he starts in verse nine, this entire section on love, the Christian ethic of love. Verses nine through 21 in Romans 12 flows all the way from verses one and two. The spiritual sacrificial living and the renewed thinking that we now have is going to lead us naturally, or I should say supernaturally, into this ethic of love that's going to be expressed between all of us here in the bride of Christ and then even to those outside of the bride of Christ. And so last week we looked at at, at verse 9 where Paul says, let your love, your agape, be genuine, abhorring what is evil, and holding fast to what is good. In other, words, in other words, genuine love is going to be discerning love. You're going to understand what evil is and you're going to shun evil and you're going to hold fast to what is good. But then he continues and he says there's more to it than just that. And we get to verse 10 today, which is we are to love each other with brotherly affection and we are to outdo one another when we show honor to each other. And so obviously, you don't need a seminary degree to be able to look at this and go, well, there's two principles today. And the principles are be devoted to affectionately loving each other and be devoted to setting the best example when it comes to showing honor for others. And here's what's really key about today is that these are not two separate statements that stand alone, but rather they are statements that are interconnected and intertwined with each other. One of the most important ways that you and I can show brotherly affection for each other is to outdo each other in showing each other honor. And so we have to see that they are, they are connected inextricably, these two statements. But something else that's interesting about this brotherly affection, love each other with a brotherly affection, that's a little bit different than last week. Last week we talked about the four different words, uh, Greek words that we find that are translated as love. Right? So we talked about storge love, which is family affection and care. And that's in the Bible. And we talked about philia love, which is love between friends or brotherly love or brother, um, friendship affection. Okay? And we talked about eros, just briefly, which is uh, sensual or sexual or romantic love. Okay? And then we talked about agape love. And that's the word for love that Paul used last week in verse 9. Agape, the unconditional sacrificial love. Let your agape be genuine, also known as as God love. So what's interesting about the word that Paul uses this week is it's not agape, but rather it is a combination of storge and philia. Literally, it's a conflation of the two loves. It's philia storge. He says, let your philia storge express itself in the church as you deal with 
one another. That's a really important thing. And, and he uses, it's the only place in Scripture where Paul jams these two words together. Everywhere else, they're separate. But here he jams them together in order to emphasize how important this is. It's as if Paul is saying, love each other in the church in every way you possibly can, <clears throat> except eros that is only reserved for marriage. We need to understand that. When it comes to every other kind of loving expression, love each other in the church. Be devoted to that kind of love to each other in the church. So devotion to friendly, brotherly, sisterly, familial affection to each other. So that's kind of the, the academic expression of, of what Paul is saying here. And so right away you might say, okay, but what does it really mean? How does that express itself? How do we apply that in our lives? Well, here are some helpful examples, I think. First of all, Paul does this. He combines these two words for emphasis, but also to, to try to demonstrate that these two kinds of love both have upsides, but they also have potential downsides. And what he wants us to do is to lean into the upsides of these loves and try our best to eliminate by the power of the Spirit the downsides of these two kinds of love. So let me explain what we're talking about there. And, and you'll all connect with this. First of all, let's talk about philia, friendship love. The love between two good friends. All of us have either experienced that. We've had such a close friend that we have such affection for, genuine affection for, that we, we really feel a bond with them. Or if we haven't experienced that yet, it's something that we desire to experience, that we yearn to experience. And that is a great love. But you and I also know that that kind of love, that kind of friendship affection that we have for each other, there's also kind of an escape hatch to that that many of us exercise way too easy. It's really easy to drift away from certain friends, especially if they go through hard seasons or they become a little bit difficult or inconvenient or uncomfortable, right? We've all experienced that. You and I know that, that especially in, in culture today, and, and research stands behind this statement as well, friendships are becoming more and more disposable and superficial every day. And I know some of you will instantly run to social media and say it's all social media's fault. And that's a part of it, but it's not the whole story. There is truth to the fact that some of you might, might say that you have you have 500 Facebook friends, but the problem, of course, is that not one of them would visit you in the hospital if you got sick. That's a problem, and we need to recognize that. Friendships are superficial, and they're easier to walk away from. So we recognize that is, is true. We enjoy good friendship love, but we've also found that it's way too easy for you and I to unfriend each other, even in real life. Not just by clicking a button, but even in real life, we can start to unfriend each other when something becomes challenging or inconvenient or uncomfortable or just hard. Paul says we should lean into the upside of this love and not the downside. We, should, we shouldn't in the church, it's not right that it's so easy for us to run away. And the church should be an example of us really loving each other even when it's hard to love each other. And then there's storge love, the, the idea of family affection and care. 
with, with, with that familial love, we also find challenges there as well. In fact, I, I even bring up that love. Last week I, I mentioned it. This week I bring it up. Some of you right now are sitting there going, I'll tell you what, if you saw my family, you would recognize that we are not a very good example of storge love. My family really struggles with this. In fact, the, the last place I'm looking for love is, is within my family. But also, you and I know we either have seen it or we've experienced it that many families are the epitome of deeply committed love, a love that never, absolutely never fails, that no matter what, in some families, there's a, a bond that accompanies their familial love that, that isn't necessarily there between friends. And, and like I said, we've, we've all seen it. You get, you get two people in a, in a family and, and, and they're just going at each other like pit bulls. But then somebody comes from outside of the family and attacks one of those pit bulls. And what do those pit bulls do? They turn in unity and they look outwardly and they begin to protect each other and love each other in that moment. And the person that's attacking from the outside has even got this idea, hey, wait a minute, I thought you two didn't like each other and now you're defending and protecting each other. Oh yeah, bring it on, my brother. And, and, and it just turns on a dime, but that's that deeply committed, here you go. In some families, we love each other enough that we can actually fight with each other. That that's okay. That it's okay to be uncomfortable and inconvenient with each other. There's a coming together in a bond that is truly unbreakable. Paul is saying that in the church, you and I should have the ability to wrestle with each other and yet defend each other's honor. And the world should be able to look at us in how we dissent with honor and respect and we disagree with honor and respect, but yet we still love each other and we don't run from each other. Paul says that we should, we should have the ability to do that in the church. And I've got to tell you something. That, that you, you don't do that by just getting up in the morning and saying, I'm going to have a strong love today. I'm just going to dedicate myself to loving better. You can only do that in a gospel-centered love, in a, in a love that's powered by the Holy Spirit that fills you. That's, that's the only way it'll happen. It, it, it is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you and I know Christ, and the assumption is that we do, if we're in Romans 12, you must know Christ, then you have the Spirit living in you and you have that power and that ability. The, the ability to wrestle and not run. Stuart Scott says it this way, and by the way, it's not the Stuart Scott that you find on ESPN. This is a different Stuart Scott. He says this, we are only truly able to love by the Spirit of God. And then he inserts parenthetically, he says, this is the how of our love. How, how can I possibly love by, like this? Well, the answer is you can't. It can only be by the power of the Spirit. So that's the how. Lean into the Spirit who is already in you. Lean into your identity in Christ, which you already have. But he doesn't stop there. He then goes on to say, but God's Word, the Bible, also tells us to love continually. That's the win. So, all right, so I have to love like this by the power of the Spirit. But when? When am I supposed to do it? Continually. All the time. You don't get a break from this. And then he goes on to say, also in the Bible, it says that we are to love in every situation, even loving your enemies. And that would be the where. So how we love is by the Spirit, when we love is always, and where we love is everywhere. And that's the gospel-centered love that Paul calls the church to, the bride of Christ to. But again, in our, in our culture, running has become or some people would say, say it this way, avoidance has become the preferred conflict resolution strategy of most people. 
Literally, research has shown that, that people admit my favorite conflict resolution style is avoidance, is just to run from it. That's the vast majority of people. Instead, we, we are to have kindred minds when loving each other. And that word kin in kindred literally means family. It's also even where we, we get the word kind. So a kindred mind is one that says, you and I are family in the bride of Christ, in the, in the church. So even when you are totally unlovable, I'm not going to run, but I am still going to love you. Even when I am totally unlovable, you don't get to run, but you are still going to love me. It, it's part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, which by the way is primarily taught within the context of the church and how Christians are supposed to treat each other, that, that love is patient and kind. That, that love does not envy or boast and love doesn't insist upon its own way and love is not resentful and that love hopes all things and bears all things and endures all things. So Paul says that we are to love each other in every possible way in the church. But here's the irony and I'm going to take a little side trip here because I think this is important to point out and just make us aware of this if we're, not, if we're still struggling with this. Here's the big irony. Paul says that this is the love that the church is supposed to have within the church with all of us working together. The irony, though, is that the culture comes along now and says, no, 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 no. That's not where you find fulfillment. That's not where you find happiness. That's not where you find meaning. But rather, that one love that Paul isn't talking about in this section of Scripture, eros, culture says, that's where you're going to find fulfillment. That's where you're going to find happiness. That's where you're going to find meaning. Eros, sex, has become the shiny new object in our culture that people are pursuing for fulfillment and happiness and meaning in life. It's become the god of our culture today. And by the way, you need to understand, this has not happened overnight. This has taken decades and decades and decades to get to the point where we are, where in the public sphere, it seems like the number one topic that we want to pursue and talk about is sex, sexual behavior, sexual orientation, sexual this, sex, everything is sex. That's where you're going to find fulfillment and pleasure and happiness and joy. That's going to be the thing. I've mentioned this book before. I still think you should read it if you haven't. It's Dale Keene's book, Sex in the Eye World, where he lays out the case for how this has happened over the last 50 to 75 years that we're at the point now where this has become the god of our age, sex. Whether it's mediated through a screen or, or mediated through some sort of transaction, it doesn't matter. That's what we're looking for today. And we can go even back further than that. There's a guy named Pitram Sorokin who, 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 who said that this would happen to us later on. He said this in, get this now, he said this in 1943. 1943, he predicted that this was going to happen, that this is where we were headed. He wrote uh, 10 or 12 different books. Among them was this book called The Crisis of Our Age. It was first published in 1944, and he had been thinking and writing about this stuff for probably 10 or 12 years prior to that, so even into the 30s. First published in 1944, published again in 1955, and then published again in 1992, and it was still relevant in 1992. In fact, people picked it up in 1992 and said, this guy was really smart back then. 
And that's one of the reasons why they republished it. Uh, Sorokin was not only the head of the sociology department or school at Harvard University, but he founded it. He's the founder of the sociology school at Harvard University. He was known by his contemporaries as a prophet of the age. And his book has been, this book, The Crisis of Our Age, has been variously described as an analysis of the culture, I'm sorry, the nature, causes, and consequences of the crisis in modern society. And some of you have to be thinking, really, 1944, there was a crisis in culture? What? Really? But, but there was, and he saw it. Academically, Sorokin called it the sensate culture. He, he says that sensate culture is life guided only by the sensory, by feelings, and by desires. Is this connecting yet? In the 40s, he identified this sensate culture, culture that is, that is driven only by immediate gratification, especially as expressed in sexual activity. The sensory, the feelings, and the desires. He literally calls this the fall into decadence. And he, and he traces how cultures over the, the, the millennia have, have succumbed to this very problem. Immediate gratification, especially as expressed in sexual activity. Now, now remember, this is in context of Paul saying, Here's where you find fulfillment in this brotherly affection for each other, not in eros, which is reserved only for marriage. It's still a good thing, but it's reserved only for marriage. And he calls it a, uh, Sorokin calls this a fall into decadence. And there's all kinds of research now that you can read about how it's been uh, confirmed over and over and over that as cultures reach a tipping point and become, and become what's known as short-term oriented cultures, in other words, uh, we don't really have a plan for the future. We're just worried about getting, getting ours now. Corporately and individually, those are cultures that are in decline. Those are peoples that are in decline. Whereas long-term oriented cultures, cultures that think about 25, 50, 75, 100 years from now, they're the cultures that are thriving and surviving. This has got to be connecting with you. You all know that where we're going with this. I guarantee you could walk over this afternoon to um, uh, Fashion Square and you could walk up to people and say, hey, could you tell me what your five-year plan is? And most of the people would have trouble giving you their five-minute plan, let alone a five-year plan. They're just worried about the next gratification that they're going to get. Uh, Sorokin, uh, this is kind of a paraphrase, but he says it this way, sex used to be a sideshow to life, now it is the show and it's one of the main things that will crumble modern Western civilization, which is exactly what Keane says in his, world, in his book, Sex in the Eye World. And listen to this now. Again, 1944, Sorokin calls his leaders back to, here you go, the high religious view that you and I are made in the image of God and that it is in our best interest to act like it. This is what Paul is getting at, I believe, in Romans chapter 12 with this love. He's saying, listen, the church shouldn't just do this, but we should be leaders in doing this. We should be setting the example of loving each other in familial, brotherly affection, one that never fails, one that puts up with everything and endures all. We should be leading, and, and the world should be looking at us and saying, there really is something different about the church. We shouldn't be going out and condemning how awful everybody is at loving, but rather we should be leading everybody in how to love. 
John Stone Street, who's a prophet for our age, he says it this way, marriage used to be the thing that justified sex, now it is the sex that justifies the marriage. It's C.S. Lewis saying that we get things all screwed up when we take second things and make them first things. Paul says, here's the first thing. Philia storge love for one another. Genuine, brotherly, sisterly friendship, affection for each other that weathers all storms. That's his call to us. He says true fulfillment can only come in the gospel and that gospel is what leads to this expression of genuine brotherly love, of genuine rest, of genuine joy, of genuine destiny, of genuine assurance, which is all things that you and I are looking for. When we talk about fulfillment, we say rest, joy, destiny, assurance. That's the gospel. That's Jesus Christ hung on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and raised from the grave to give us eternal life and reconcile us to the Father. John Ortberg then comes along and he says, when thinking about this kind of love and honor for each other in the church, think of the Trinity And then he uses this word. I love this word. He made up this word specifically for this. He says, in the Trinity, you you see the three persons of the Trinity practicing what he calls yieldedness to each other. Yieldedness. They're shy towards each other. They're always honoring and loving each other above themselves. It's, It's the perfect picture of Romans chapter 12, verse 10, the Trinity and how they relate to each other. Keller says it this way. The inner life of the triune God is utterly different than ours. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. Ultimate reality is a community of persons who know how to love each other. Last week I was sitting with a a group of pastors and and one of them uh, was talking about how uh, his wife knows knows this lady in in the salon where she goes. And and, um, this lady in the salon where she works is is antagonistic to the Christian faith. But but she's been inviting this lady to her RC or her small group or whatever it is that you want to call it. The thing that Luke and Jessica were up here talking about today. Kept inviting her, inviting her, inviting her over the months. And she's like, no, 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 not for me. Finally, one day she goes, okay, I'll come. So, oh, okay, Thursday night, here's the address. Please come, six o'clock. And they're like most other RCs or small groups. You know, they have a little food, they hang out together, and then they do a little Bible study. So she goes home and tells her husband, and her husband says, oh, that's interesting, because the text that we're going to be looking at that night is Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you don't know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, essentially what they do is they lie to God and God strikes them dead right there on the spot. Not exactly a seeker-friendly text. So now they're going, well, should we change the text? You know, maybe to Jesus wept or something like that. Something easy, you know, that we can do. And they say, no, they finally say, God is sovereign. There's a reason. Let's do it. So she comes. They eat. They hang out. They go through the Bible study. Everybody's talking. She hasn't said a word. Finally, towards the end of the night, somebody looks over at her and says, you have anything you want to say? Any comment? Any input that you want to have? And she said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. I can't believe how you guys get together and just love on each other like this. That's what she saw in the midst of that. The text didn't even matter. Rather, the Holy Spirit expressing its love through these people is what got her attention. That is the gospel living itself out in the life of the church. Now, having said that, let me mention this because I think this, we should say this. Okay? 
The love of the church should never fail us. The love of the church should never fail you and me. Can I get an amen on that? Right? That's, that's the ideal, right? Has the love of the church ever failed anybody? Not a trick question. Yes, it has. You know why? Because the church is filled with fallen, sinful people looking for redemption, restoration, healing, and forgiveness. And we screw up sometimes. But let me tell you something. That should not be an excuse for us to fail. Instead, our goal, our call, and our objective as a church is to never fail anybody in our love. That's what God calls us to. And even when we fail, we need to get right back up by the power of the Spirit and go on loving each other. The first thing Paul says then that we must embrace as a church is loving each other in an affectionate family way. So then the second half of that verse, our second principle today, based on the Greek, if you look at it very closely, actually could be worded this way. And as to honor, you should be the best in showing it to others. (laughs) It's like Paul's calling us out to competition. Really? There's competition in the Bible? I thought it was kind of egalitarian and everybody. No, he's saying you need to be the best at this. Be the best at showing honor to others. And the Greek word for honor that we translate there literally could also mean price or value. When you, when you honor someone, you're showing that person, him or who, whoever it is, that they have value, that they have worth. But you need to understand something. And here you go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna really drive hard on this, okay? This can only be done in relationship and in community. And so I hear this all the time as a pastor. I'm inviting people to church. I'm asking people to church. And, and even Christians who don't go to church but yet they profess a faith in Christ. I hear this all the time. I don't need a church to be a Christian. Really? What do you do with the New Testament then and all of those each other verses and one another verses? What do you do with that? It's talking about it within the context of the church. What do you do with Ephesians chapter four and five, which is all about how you're to relate to each other in the church and out of reverence for Christ, you are to submit to one another. How do you do that if you don't go to church? What do you do with Romans chapter 12, which is all about being in the church if you're not in a church? Do you just read Romans one through 11 and then skip to 13, submit therefore to the governing authorities? That's a party. You need to be in church. The New Testament calls you to be in church. And I know you're sitting there going, I'm here, quit yelling at me. All right, tell everybody else. (laughs) I get that, all right? But this has to be done in relationship and community. And those of you that think, well, this is a really high burden to to have to love each other and honor each other. It's gonna be inconvenient and hard and awkward. I want you to think about this. And now I'm just gonna gonna flat out lay out some good old-fashioned Protestant evangelical guilt on all of you today. How we go? How about that? Let's go. All right, here we go. All right? Think about this. If this is bothering you, how much did Jesus honor you and me? He did die for us. How much did Jesus honor you and me? Think about the value that he shows for us by going to the cross. Think about the worth that his death assigns to you and me. Consider the price that he paid so that you and I wouldn't have to pay anything. 
Consider the loss of dignity that he suffered so that you and I would have dignity. You need to understand, the cross wasn't just awkward and inconvenient and a little bit painful. The cross was shameful, desperately shameful. God created us in his image and likeness and then he paid the price to redeem us so that you and I could be conformed to the image of his son, which is exactly what Romans 8.29 says. So then Jesus comes along and he makes this command of us. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Kind of a burden, Jesus. <laughs> so loving each other with brotherly affection means that we're going to show each other honor and value. It's one of the reasons why being in community with each other is critical. Further, God not only calls us to do this, but he, but he tells us to do it in a way that's top-notch. He says we're to outdo each other in, in this area. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than yourself. That's the sister verse to this. And like I said, it's Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another, therefore, out of reverence for Christ. In, in the New Testament book, Second Opinions, it, it, it goes like this. You are to practice playing second fiddle to each other. It's in there. You go look for it. It's in the Greek, Okay. But again, this is so counterintuitive for us. It's counterintuitive for me. I'm telling you. It's counterintuitive for me. And, and, and so just as a human being, I know it's counterintuitive for you. Uh, so I want to show you this little video. It's about three minutes long. It's really, really goofy. It's kind of funny. But he makes a really important theological point here. He didn't mean to, but he's going to. So just watch this, and then I'll unpack it for you, Okay.
There you go. That's the line. He's got it. He's not a pastor. He's not a theologian, but he gets it. What is it about the human condition that people get something out of that? It's our fallenness. It's our sin. We don't naturally want to give honor to others. We naturally want others to give honor to us. And so that is our goal in life. But in the church, Paul says, you're going to switch that around. It's not you, me, in the church. It's me, you, that's what it's supposed to look like in the church, and the church is to be leaders in showing this. By the way, I only had one wisdom tooth pulled, so I can't even enter that conversation. It kind of sucks. Anyway, so, so this is really important, and, and, and understand, I've seen this for years and years and years in the 21st century individualistic church. Even in the church, one of the great challenges is, is the number of people who are waiting around for, for people to recognize them and to affirm them and to be in awe of them and to congratulate them and to thank them and to make a big deal about them and to retweet them. That's what they're waiting around for in the church. And Paul says, no, your job is not to wait around and wait for people to notice you, but your job is to go out and outdo others in showing honor. Go out and gra- congratulate. Go out and recognize. Go out and affirm. Go out and honor others. Our nature is to seek and find and secure honor for ourselves, to be me monsters. And Paul says, no. Jerry Smith says the opposite of love is not hate, but it's self-centeredness. So what does it mean to show honor to somebody? I gotta tell you, it really boils down to this one uh, uh, indisposable ingredient, and that's the ingredient I've already mentioned. It's humility. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than yourself. And then he goes on to say, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We should be outward focused. There's a guy that, uh, old guy, probably dead, that Myers likes to quote all the time. His name is Brother Lawrence, and I have a favorite quote of Brother Lawrence's. Here it is. Everyone wants to save the world, but no one wants to do the dishes. Showing honor to others is the dish cleaning of the gospel-centered Christian. That's what it is. There's no discernible return on investment. You're not going to be affirmed back. You're not going to see your ministry go crazy when you show honor to others. You're not going to make more money, none of that stuff. There's no discernible ROI. Hardly anybody's ever going to notice. I've been around this church thing for a long, long time, and I hear people all the time say, oh, that person can really teach, and that person can can really lead, and that person can, can really play music. And I have never heard anybody say, hey, you know what? Joe's really good at showing honor to others. Yet without showing honor in the church, the church is going to eat off of dirty plates. We need people who are humble enough, all of us, to be able to do the dishes of the church to show each other honor. And we honor others in humility by serving them. By serving them. So we should look for opportunities to show honor. Don't wait around for others to show us honor. Let's go look for opportunities. Be eager to show honor. Be willing, here, this is tough for some people I know, but be willing to verbalize your love and honor for others. Be willing to say it. And be anxious not for your honor, but for the honor of others. We're gonna close today with uh, 
uh, communion and a couple of songs. And, and communion is different this morning. You can see, you can see it's a little bit different. We've got these, um, now you can see clearly, right? You can see this really clearly. Anyway, we've got these uh, little all-in-one communion packets, okay? Uh, th- th- they, they, they work really well. You, you peel off the top, and that should open the top up, and you can find inside uh, the top there, you, you see your, your uh, little communion wafer, wafer. That is the body of Christ there. So you have the wafer, body of Christ broken for you. And then you have the blood, all in one. Beautiful, wrapped, sanitary. Blood of the new covenant that Christ shed for you on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. We have these this way because we wanted to be able to do something in communion where we might be able to show honor and express our honor for others and serve each other communion. And we thought that this might be the most sanitary way to do it. It's not the the most sacred way of doing it, but it is the most sanitary way. What we want you to do is we want you to have communion this morning. Come up and take communion. Come up with your family. Gather around one of these four tables in the room and take communion together. Come up with your friends. Uh, Come up with people you don't know and take communion together. But then grab a couple of these and go and serve communion to somebody else. And as you serve it to them, say, this is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and I want to honor you by serving you the Lord's Supper. And give it to them. And that means that some of you may actually take communion like five times this morning. That's okay. And if you're somebody who's not predisposed to taking communion, this is not your thing, you're like here for the first time and you're like, what did I walk into today, okay? And you don't want to take it, then just politely refuse. We'll be okay with that as well. But I'll also say this. Might be an awesome way for you to take your first communion if you've never taken communion before. When I first became a Christian, I had never taken communion, and Jackie and I were attending a church, the church that she grew up in, North Phoenix Baptist Church, and they only did communion four times a year. That was it. Not every week like we did. And so when, I remember when I became a Christian and, and they served communion for the first time, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what to do. Jackie served me my first communion, and it was awesome. I'm a big boy now. I can serve myself. And I can serve others, but it was awesome. That was my first communion, somebody else serving me. And so I know for some of you this might feel a little bit chaotic. It's not what we normally do. You know, you want the intention or whatever. We're going to do it this way. It probably won't work perfectly, but we also know, especially based on what happened in first service, that this is going to honor and bless a lot of people. And we're going to take our time doing this. There's no rush. You can relax. We have two songs to go through. And so just come and grab some communion. Take it. Take it with your family. Take it with your friends. Take it alone and then go and find somebody else uh, to serve. And let's serve each other and show each other honor this morning in communion.